Welcome to In My Backyard, an open conversation about children and mental health. We all know a child who's struggling, whether that child tells us or not. In this podcast, we speak with experts on the many factors of emotional distress in children, how to address those factors, and how to create a community where all children can be healthy and happy. This podcast is made possible through generous donations from supporters and listeners like you. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Your host is Trisha Costales, CEO of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. I'm Trisha Costales, your host of In My Backyard. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the chief executive officer of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency serving 3,500 children and families every year. going to have a conversation about substance use disorders, what is commonly referred to by the general public as drug or alcohol addiction. Substance use disorders are included in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders 5th edition, or DSM-5, as qualified mental health impairments that can benefit from treatment, such as any other mental health issue. The new terminology of the DSM-5 represents an important change in our understanding of substance use, moving away from the more pejorative labels of addict or substance abuser to focus instead on the problematic behaviors themselves. The word addict conjures up any number of negative stereotypes in our minds, a skinny, scary guy with loose morals and a lack of willpower. The word abuse is always negative in nature. Sexual abuse, physical abuse, domestic abuse, all terms that imply victim and perpetrator. Changing the terminology from addict or abuser to person with a substance use disorder more properly places the attention on the behavior, not the person, and makes it clear that these disorders are in fact illnesses. Why does this matter? According to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA, one out of every 12 Americans suffers from a substance use disorder. That represents 18.7 million individuals. Of those, 8.5 million have a second comorbid mental health disorder, such as PTSD, major depression, or bipolar disorder. It's time to stop stigmatizing these people, instead supporting them on their journey to recovery as we would anyone else with a debilitating illness. The DSM-5 states that the essential features of a substance abuse disorder is a cluster of cognitive, behavioral, and psychological symptoms indicating that the individual continues using the substance despite significant substance-related problems. There are a number of specified symptoms that fit into one of four major groupings as follows. Impaired control over the behavior, such as drinking more and more over time, trying unsuccessfully to quit, craving alcohol and seeking alcohol-related activities. Social impairment from the behavior, such as missing work or academic deadlines because of drinking or being hungover drinking or using drugs even though it's causing problems in your marriage, skipping a movie perhaps because there's no alcohol there. Risky use, 
Drinking, even though your blood pressure is high or you've developed diabetes, perhaps drinking when driving. Pharmacological criteria. You need to drink more and more to get drunk or you get symptoms of withdrawal when not drinking or using. In the case of alcohol use disorder, there are 11 possible symptoms which fit into those four major groupings. Anyone demonstrating two or more of the symptoms qualifies as having this diagnosis, ranging from mild to moderate or severe, depending on how many are met. Now this is confusing. It's easy to get our heads around substances being a problem when we're talking about things such as opiates, heroin, cocaine, the scary stuff. Alcohol is a normative part of our culture, literally everywhere. Marijuana is becoming more and more so, as it is legalized in an increasing number of states. What about college? Those years are ripe with experimentation and overuse. Are we pathologizing normal behavior? When do we really know if someone has a problem? Fortunately, we have Dr. Jessica Schneider with us today to help us better understand this important topic. Jessica is one of the founders of Evidence-Based Therapy Partners. She's a licensed psychologist and consultant trainer in a number of evidence-based treatment modalities, including dialectical behavior therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy. Her specialties include emotional dysregulation, relational aggression, and substance use disorders, amongst others. We're lucky to have her here today. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much for joining us today. While I have not met you before today, I do have the honor of knowing two of your partners in evidence-based therapy partners. We were lucky enough to have Dr. Julie Orris with us last episode. Uh, but for our listeners and for me, will you please take a minute to introduce yourself? Sure. So I am, like you said, I am a licensed psychologist and have worked in the field for the last 15 years or so, specifically with emotion dysregulation and uh, evidence-based treatments. I really have a passion for making sure that what I'm doing works and gets the outcomes that my patients are wanting and needing. I am... I have been based in LA and uh, mostly in like Santa Monica, Beverly Hills and a little and did some work in Orange County as well. But I am in the process of making a move to Chicago as well. So I am lucky enough to keep my clinical community, but um, get to kind of branch out. And I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I think this idea of destigmatizing mental health and accessing support and help is huge. So thank you so much. Thank you. I agree with that. And uh, congratulations on your move. I hope you don't freeze. <laughs> I don't know that, that I can promise that. <laughs> it is very cold. Very exciting, though. Um, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna dive right in. You know, there's still, I think, so much stigma around substance use disorders. It's we tend to still really blame uh, people for their struggles. No one chooses to be uh, have bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, but we choose to drink or to take drugs. So could you explain to us, please, how are substance use disorders illnesses and not a choice? Well, I think the first thing to really consider and think about is that nobody would choose addiction. Like it is so destructive to your life, to your relationships, to your well-being, to your health. And I, I think the first thing is to realize that a lot of people 
could be vulnerable to substance use, but there are some of us that be that have an addictive quality to that, that those disorders become pervasive and destructive in their lives, where the substance actually becomes the thing that you focus on, that you you zero in on. And when it comes to substance use as an illness or addiction as an illness or however you want to frame it, I think it is more about looking at that there are some of us that are more vulnerable to those factors, whether it's biological, whether it's the lives that we've led, the trauma that we have, like the reward systems in our brain get activated and get hooked with these chemicals. And some people use and they have that and some people use and they don't. And I think there's so many different contextual factors that make that come up for us. And I think it's important to think of any mental health illness as or mental illness as a as an illness. It's like diabetes. It's something that we have to manage. Like there are behaviors that we may choose that make it worse or make it better and make our lives better. And that's also related to like how we manage diabetes. People who overuse sugar or eat sugar to excess, like they are vulnerable to diabetes and they then have to manage it. And some people are born with it. Some people uh, develop it over time. And I think really looking at substance use as not a choice, but as a series of factors that have come together to have people relying on substances and then it's no longer just should I or I shouldn't or shouldn't I. It becomes about survival. It becomes about their daily living as well. So certainly like taking those initial drinks, for example, that is a choice. But whether someone, whether that evolves into problematic behavior or not or problem a problem over time, that's the part that's not a choice and that's different. Absolutely. Okay. I was actually in prepping for the podcast. I was going back to some of the research that I know, and there was actually a study done of uh, war vets in the Vietnam War. And a lot of Vietnam vets were using substances, using heroin or opioids particularly. And most of them came back and stopped using. And some of them came back and had an addiction problem that that continued, or substance use problem that continued. And I think it is so important to look at that like just because you use doesn't mean you're an addict and I think being able to hold that helps us be more effective at helping people who are struggling with substances as well to be able to look at those factors that makes a lot of sense to put it in context that way for sure and you know preparing for this made me think a lot too about what's problematic behavior, what's not, what are we pathologize, what do we don't. It was it was really interesting to dive into this. And, you know, perhaps I'll own this says something about my social circle. But when I look at the DSM-5, uh, when I look at the diagnostic criteria, um, how it says just two of those symptoms at any time in your life um, could be diagnosable. And it seemed to me that that described just about any college student I'd ever met, with the notable exception of my sons who are in college <laughs> and who would never do that. Um, so how do we draw the line between normative behavior, experimentation, or and problem behavior? I think the, the line that I draw regarding problematic behavior and 
kind of within the range of normal or controllable is really, are you able to control the behavior? Are you, if you get feedback from your environment or there are consequences that are kind of coming up for you that are suggesting that drinking or using is not effective for you and you're able to look at that and say like, okay, let me like back off of my use for a moment or or whether or not you can actually do that. And if it's this constant pull towards the substance. And I I have always used the frame of, is it impacting your social, emotional, like work, employment, relationship, life? Is it is it causing a problem in these other areas that are actually not within your control. And I think when it comes to that question about whether or not it's normal I, or in the range of normal or when it becomes a problem, I think you're right. It, we do have to look at context. Because if I look at any college student, not any, but most <laughs> – Except co- my sons. Except for your sons. <laughs> if I look at – and except for me when I was in college. Um, if we look at most college students, like if they go to the doctor – their doctors are going to be like, "Uh, you need rehab. Like you need you have a problem here." And I think that context is so important to look at and I think actually is a great predictor of like whether or not there's a problem and actually speaks to what needs to change because a lot of use in context is like, "Okay, my environment is is using my and this is normal. I'm I'm going to loaf. Like I'm going to move towards my environment. I'm going to do what my environment is doing. And I think that is, that's a really important piece to look at like culturally and also um, at different stages of life. Like if I were drinking even a portion of what the frequency and the intensity that I may have been in college, like that would be pretty destructive to my to my right. everyday life. And I think... So context matters mm-hmm. too. Totally. You know, that, that's interesting to me because I was thinking... Yeah, I grew up in Spain mm-hmm. um, and I've spent a lot of time in Italy. And in Spain, you know, you have dinner at 10 o'clock at night and you have wine with dinner, totally. every dinner. It's normative. It would be strange not to have wine with dinner. Or in the morning on your way to school or work, you see all these men at the coffee shop drinking their espresso with a cognac before they go to work totally, or they'll have a glass of wine with lunch and go to work. If we did that, we'd be fired. Absolutely. So it, there is an invite. So are all Spanish, are all Spaniards alcoholics? If we looked at that behavior here, we would say that's problematic. You're going to lose your job. But there to a large degree, it was normative. So it makes it confusing to how do you draw the line? Totally. And I think that is, I actually uh, did a more than a semester abroad, and that was one of the things. My senora would always be like, why aren't you out more? Why aren't we having more wine with dinner? Like, I'm go- I need to go to bed. <laughs> but <laughs> um, I, do, I think that's speaking to the context, because even in, it was interesting, in the apartment building that I lived in, there was an AA um, an AA location. <laughs> and so I think even in those contexts, it's looking at how is it impacting your life and whether or not the behavior is within your control, the the increasing, the decreasing. And I think there's some substances that that is easier to move through and identify. And there's some that um, that we actually need more support around reducing reducing use for sure. 
That makes sense. Well, and I, I know, of course, and I ask this question a lot, and I know it's kind of an impossible one to answer, but um, I ask it anyway. Um, you know, every person is different. Everyone has their own narrative, their own story. But the, the people you treat who are struggling with substance use, what common sorts of threads do you see? I think that's an excellent question, and I think it's hard, like you're saying, I think it's very hard to say what makes it so somebody has a problem and one what makes it so somebody does not. I think the common thread that I see among all people who are struggling with substances, and I think this also might be somewhat of the population I see, but I, I see it in other um, in other areas as well, is a lack of connection. People who are really feeling isolated and really feeling like they don't have a place to land, they don't have their people, they don't have their community. Uh, and I th think when it comes to to that presentation, it really depends, and that can cr be created by a whole host of things. It can be created by trauma, it can be created by poor emotion management, which causes relationship problems, with, which causes more isolation. It could be a global pandemic. Like there are so many factors that create this isolation experience. And I think when it comes to people who are more vulnerable, we have to look at like, what are the social problems coming up? I see a lot of my adolescents who are struggling with substances have experienced some form of relational aggression or where they're being kind of rejected by their peers. And substances become a really quick way to connect with people. Oh, this group is doing is smoking weed. Like if I smoke weed, it's a, it's a gentler in, it's an easier connection. I think it's also in terms of emotion management, it's a quick fix. Like I, I hear all the time, like, Oh, I'm so nervous about this thing. Like, I'm just going to have a glass of wine. I'm going on this date. I'm nervous. Like, let me have a glass of wine before I go, or let me have a drink before I go, or hearing somebody who is getting on a plane, like, let me just take a Xanax. Like I'll feel, I'll <laughs> feel better. Right. I think it's so easy to not have to sit through and experience the emotions. And as a culture, we have really moved away from that saying pain is the thing that we need to avoid at all costs. And I think when people haven't learned how to do that, I, I think substances become an easier avenue towards that. And I think that isolation is really powerful. I also think when it comes to substance use, there is so much shame and stigmatization that once you start, there's more of that isolation. There's more of that response from your environment that like you're not accepted here. So it's that vicious cycle of like, let me use, but then I'm going to get even more rejected. And so let me use more to cope with it. And it kind of spirals from there. I think that's actually really quite beautiful how you put that. That really helps, I think, clarify the issue that it's a really quick fix for that emotional regulation. If you're feeling anxious or scared or upset or sad, it's it's work to make your way through those feelings. It's scary. It's hard. It's easier to numb it with alcohol and not to say that people who, or drugs of any sort, and not to say that those people somehow don't have fortitude, but perhaps their plate is fuller or there's something different going on in their lives. And it just, it's a, 
it's a simpler path to say, and we all do it. I'm stressed out. I need a glass of wine before I go do this, right? We all do that. Totally. So it's just that sort of on steroids, perhaps in some ways. But I do think what sort of the the perception that people have is that that's you're weak if you follow that path. So what might make the difference between someone who, oh, I'm nervous about this tomorrow, so I'm going to have a glass of wine versus where it becomes uh, a serious ongoing sort of coping problem. Again, it's one of those gray areas. What's when does it, when is that a problem? Because most of us have at some point said, oh my gosh, I had a bad day. I'm opening a bottle of wine, right? Yes, absolutely. I think that when it comes to the differences, it speaks to what we were getting at before, that there are some people that have more of a predisposition. And I think just because you didn't have a problem at one stage of your life doesn't mean that it won't happen later on. It's not about strength. It's not about weakness. It's really about like what is what is life piling on? Like, what is your biology mm. piling on top of that that makes you vulnerable in this moment? And it, it, I think of it as a DBT therapist, we rely a lot on teaching emotion regulation skills, distress tolerance skills, interpersonal effectiveness skills, and mindfulness skills. And when your skills break down and you don't have access to something different, there is nothing more immediate and rewarding than a, than a drink or some sort of substance. It really, it's that quick, immediate release. And I think when, if I have a stressful day and I'm like, oh, let me have a glass of wine, I have other resources that I can pull upon to make it so that that isn't the only thing that I use, the only resource mm -hmm. that I go to. I might also call a friend. Like I might also rest a little bit more. And when you don't have access to other factors or your biology is coming in and saying like, and your brain is firing in a way that's saying like, Ooh, this, you're not going to get something else as rewarding as this. It's so much easier to just keep going with the substances. You know, one of the, the things that strikes me and, you know, throughout my career working with, um, you know, my, my practice was specifically, you know, kids who were victims of abuse, neglect, etc. I can't tell you how many children I've worked with um, and parents I've worked with where I know the parent genuinely loved their child, lost custody of their child over giving up the drugs or giving up drinking. Mm -hmm. But I know that they loved their child, but still the, the power of the substance was somehow greater than the risk of losing custody of their child. And what, how does it get to that point? What purpose do the substances have in that person's sort of mental health journey that it consumes so much that they're willing to lose something as important as custody of their child or someone who uh, has cirrhosis of the liver and continues to drink. Like that's a real, there's a driving imperative there. Mm -hmm. If you're willing to sacrifice your own life or, or the custody of your children mm -hmm. um, because of this substance, what's that drive all about? I, I go back to behaviorism. 
the, when it comes to what maintains behavior is rewards, is relief or re- reward. And the things that have the most impact on whether or not a behavior continues is the things that immediately follow the engagement in the behavior. So the idea of losing your kids, right? Like who would you love your unbearable, kid? Unbearable, right? right? Unbearable. The pain of that Again, it's that vicious, it's the avoidance cycle that I feel so bad that I'm in this state that I need a drink to get relief from that, or I need whatever substance I'm Mm. using as relief from that. And the relief is from using the substance is way more powerful than the punisher of potentially losing your kids because your brain can't see it. It can't hold it. Punishers actually don't work to influence and change our behavior. I wish they did. We would. I think we'd all be better off <laughs> if like I could think my health is primary, but it's really thinking about the power and the intensity of how much, one, our thoughts trick us. Like I can get into a real good baloney cycle (laughs) to really (laughs) tell myself like, oh, this, yes, if I do this, it'll, it's not a problem for me. I, I can keep doing it. Like I'll just make it up tomorrow. It's that idea of like, it'll, I'll just fix it tomorrow. I'll fix it tomorrow. I'm going to put it off till tomorrow. Just because our thoughts can get in there and twist things around that it's not going to matter if I stop drinking. My child is still going to be so angry at me that, I'm not going to be able to bear it. I'm not going to be able to handle it. So I'm going to like, it's not going to matter in the end anyway. They're not going to give me my kid back anyway. Like that's how our thoughts kind of get in there and trick us to maintaining the use and staying consistent with substance use. I think the other thing is that when you're, when, when you're working with somebody who is, who has the physiological and emotional dependency on substances, the thing that happens is you are no longer working with a clean or clear brain. You are working Mm. with an addict brain where the substance is the thing that becomes primary. They can't get out of that thought cycle. And I think that's really important to recognize too when you're working within this, that shame is really powerful. Punishers don't work and the reward and relief of using is so immediate and so intense that it's, it can be really hard to overcome. So that reward sort of center in the brain is so activated that it it supersedes everything else in the end. Totally. And I think some of this is really looking at, I think you're bringing up a good point that these are, are life worth living factors in DBT, uh, mm-hmm. in dialectical behavior therapy. I love that about DBT, that life worth living. Are you living your life, exactly. the life that you want? And yes, I love that. I love it. And I think the... Um, I think the thing with life worth living is we hear it and it's kind of this like flowery term. But if we really get to the Hmm. root of what Marshall Linehan meant when she kind of came up with that goal, it's thinking about how am I building a life that I don't want to jeopardize? So I know plenty of people who are sober and they have built a life that the idea of using jeopardizes their life so their life wins out over the substance. But when you're so active in your use, that it, that's, I think, where it gets stuck, where people get stuck. Because they, it's having to overcome that mountain of let me, right, let me right. stop using, but that's so painful to get out of as well. 
Right, right, right. And you haven't yet built up all those other elements of the life that is worth living. So that transition period just seems untenable and manageable. Exactly. Exactly. That makes sense. Now, am I right? And, you know, I, I would, this is a, an open question. I'm okay to be told that I'm wrong. Am I right that treatment goals to some degree have moved away from sort of the, the AA model of you need total abstinence? Um, and more towards a goal of harm reduction. And, you know, I, I know there are multiple treatment programs out there that kick patients out if they've relapsed, which seems so sort of counterindicated to me. me Relapse <laughs> seems to me like it, it's part of the journey, right? It should right. be expected. And if they're relapsing, well, gosh, they need the help more than ever. So why then, why be so punitive in response to something that we know is part of their their treatment journey. But is it true that some of treatment orientations have moved away from we are expecting total abstinence, but instead let's work towards harm reduction? And explain what that means, I guess. Yes, I think so. I, I think you're right on with that. So abstinence-only programs are where you're coming into treatment and committing to being off of all substances. I think AA has that in their principles, um, and I want to say a little bit more about that. But harm reduction is – the goal of harm reduction is not let me take it out of your life. Let's reduce the harm. Let's get your – can you get your use to a level that is not having negative impacts on your life, on your relationships, on your um, – on your health, and let's see how we get there. I think that has been a trend in different treatments for substances. I AA still holds the abstinence-only model. In DBT, we talk a lot about this idea of dialectical abstinence, where we have to figure out not absolute abstinence or harm reduction, but what is what does use actually look like for you? Is it is can you stay effective if you have two glasses of wine a week and are you able to manage that and maintain that? Uh, and so the idea of dialectical abstinence is also looking at lapses as part of the process. So instead of like you go back to square one, it really is about how can we look at that? Can we learn from it? Can we adjust? how we're approaching things to help you be more successful. And dialectical abstinence, some people might actually end up at taking all substances off the table. I've also heard in in being in California for a while, I've also heard this idea of uh, California sober, where some substances people <laughs> use. Like some people are okay with smoking weed, but they want to stop drinking or whatever it might be. So I think <laughs> California sober, that's hilarious. <laughs> I haven't heard that. I'm going to remember that. <laughs> um, so, and, I, and listen, I agree with you. I think these treatment programs, we, we realize it now. Treatment programs for substance use don't work that well. The outcomes aren't that robust. In AA, in DBT, in, in um, rehab facilities, in these more residential communities for um, to work on sobriety or co- to work on substances, the rates of success are pretty, are pretty low. And I think what we are learning is that shaming and punishing people for use 
doesn't work because it further isolates mm-hmm. them. And so the harm reduction or dialectical abstinence is looking at how do we actually make attending to your vulnerabilities as part of the treatment. So how do we look at your cravings? How do we look at your like impulses to want to use the uh, like temptations and urges for rebellion? How do we actually not pathologize that move away from like those things are bad and move towards like, let's understand them. Like how do we actually approach those factors that make somebody more vulnerable to relapse, how do we not say, like, you can't talk about that, like, let's not, you can't have those urges, like, take them off the table. How do we look at them and say, those urges are normal. How do you cope with them? How do you deal with them? And if you lapse, let's learn from it and move forward. Because I think that's the biggest piece. So is it sort of like, well, what was going on for you prior to the relapse? What was happening? Let's learn from this. This is valuable information. So, okay, you were feeling X, Y, and Z. So next time you're feeling this, what can we do instead? Is So it's a learning opportunity. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And I think, too, when if we take an abstinence-only approach – I think where people get stuck is the shame in a relapse. And so it just perpetuates more use. And I actually think that the AA community, when I think, I think there are, because it's not a treatment community, it's a bunch of other people who are struggling with a similar struggle and communicating about it. And I think there is actually room for that dialectical abstinence. It's, it's, you, you've had a lapse and come back. Like, I think it, when, we are noticing that these communities work or these treatment outlets work. It really is when that is available to people that they're able to say, I've had, I've, I've made a mistake. I'm human. And where can they land that they get support on getting back on track? And could successful treatment for some people perhaps be moderation and for others, it needs to be full abstinence that they, that's what's best for them for their life worth living. <laughs> yes, I think absolutely because the that is the model of dialectical abstinence. Some people are going to say, "I'm I can't drink, I can't use substances, I can't do this California sober thing," and some people can say, "Like my life is manageable if I am drinking occasionally, or if I'm smoking weed occasionally, or it's enhanced by those." factors as well. So I think that's where I really love approaching substance use from that dialectical place of how can we recognize that there might be a function for you, there is ability, you can build skills to manage it, and then some people can't. I've had, I had one patient that we tried to do the harm reduction for a long time, and finally he was like, I just got to give this up. And that's, that was based on really looking at the data for this individual. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I would think that would make starting treatment feel less scary mm-hmm. to let's let's this is going to be an experiment. We're going to do this together and see where we need to land at the end. Absolutely. Um, I would think that would feel less scary than to say you're coming in and you need to quit. And that's the only way we can define a successful outcome. Absolutely. And I I, I think that speaks to there's another motivational interviewing is another approach to substance use, which is kind of meeting people at the stage of um, of change that they are in and moving through the stages of change incrementally, but not in this like absolute 
kind of dogmatic or polarizing way. According to the National Institute of Mental Health and the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, the teens to early 20s is the riskiest time for developing problematic substance use habits. The National Center for Drug Abuse Statistics this year reported some very alarming data. Drug use among 8th graders increased 61% between 2016 and 2022. 62% of 12th graders have abused alcohol, 3% drink daily, 17% have five or more drinks in one setting. Amongst middle and high school students, 13% have tried marijuana, 8% have used hallucinogenics, 5% have used cocaine, 9% of 8th graders have tried amphetamines. Opioid deaths amongst 15 to 24-year-olds have increased 500% since 1999. 4,777 young people die by overdose annually. It's no surprise to me that these trends match the horrifying upward trends we've discussed in prior episodes. Suicidal thoughts, hopelessness, deaths by suicide. It does beg the question, what is happening to our young people and how can we better help them? Jessica, I know you're a private practitioner. You're not a public health expert. Um, but when we read about the statistics facing our current sort of young people, the current generation, it's just heartbreaking. All these um sort of the joint epidemics of youth mental health, increases in suicidality and substance use disorders. You know, do you have any sense? I know that you do treat young people. What's sort of driving this, this new surge in uh, distress amongst our young people? I think there's a lot of factors that come into play, especially when it comes to substances. I think one thing is availability the availability of substances, the new substances mm. that are coming out. And if I think about the adolescents I work with or me as a teen, like trying the new cool thing that everybody else is doing has an allure to it. And so there's so many different versions of substances, ways of using that are available and out there. So I think one is the availability. I think also with that, um, there is a show that I just started watching called Dope Sick, um, which is about <laughs> the opioid epidemic mm -hmm. and um, ox and the availability and the marketing of Oxy. And I think that's part of it, too. There are so many drugs available, whether it's Xanax, whether it's Adderall or Oxy, that is available to our kid. Like, all of those are available pretty consistently, whether it's in homes and I think think so just the nor how we normalize use especially prescription drug use uh, I think that is a factor I also think about like the media and not to blame the media and not to vilify the media but if I think about when I was a teenager like watching Saved by the Bell and seeing Jesse Spano like use <laughs> or I don't know if it was caffeine pills or what but there was a discussion around drugs that was more about like, how do we help? How do we support? How is it a problem? And now where we look at shows like Euphoria that I think there is a huge 
you see the downside of it, but I think you also see the allure of it in, in what people are watching. And also we see more of other people's lives with social media, with, um, YouTube with videos out there. Like there's just more access to, oh, I see this person using, that looks interesting. We, and, uh, one of my, and they're glamorous and they're beautiful and exactly. And I think also one of my patients always says like the Instagram life versus real life. Like you're not seeing Hmm. the real life of substance use. You're seeing how, how it's alluring, right? Like how it, it could be fun and it's, and then there's music festivals like Coachella that people, and all of these things make sense and they're fun environments. But I think from a younger age, people are having access to information and just it's sparking interest in a different way that wouldn't, that isn't, wasn't there before and wasn't accessible right. before. I think there's right. also more isolation, more shame that kids are experiencing. I think there's different pressures that people experience, whether it's economic or social or achievement oriented. Like if I think about what it takes to get into college now or... Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, you know this from your kids, right? Like yeah, what it took for me to get into school, it was very different than what it takes to get into the same school in the same way now. And so... I think that creates more isolation because you're having to you're you're focusing on your application versus focusing on the experience of being in activities or or whatnot. Right, right, right. That makes sense. And then you feel like you're never going to match up too, don't you? Absolutely. When it's become so hard. Yes, for sure. Absolutely. You know, like you said, I did just go through that. I have eight-year-old twin sons who are freshmen in college right now. And it was something to uh, go along on their journey of applying to schools and how how stressful that was. And it's very different from when, when I applied for sure. And I think about them now in college and I read stats about substance abuse there. And I certainly talk to them about substance abuse and, and pills and drugs. But at the same time, I went to college. I'm not naive. Um, I know what happens there. Um, So what would you say to our listeners, you know, as parents, clinicians, friends, teachers who are out there listening to us, how do we help keep our young people safe from harmful substance use? I think there's this acceptance that we have to have of the idea that it's out there and being real about it. Because I have had kids tell me or me confront them in therapy of saying like, okay, I don't know that I'm getting the full story. And I had one patient tell me like, I won't lie to you. I was like, well, why? Like, subs- like substance use equals lying. <laughs> Sometimes it's hiding, right. it's That's lying. What That's what happens. Yes. And she said, <laughs> honestly, what will happen is like, I will bring it to you. I know you don't like what I'm doing, but we can have a conversation about it. And I think that approach with adolescents especially is so important to – acknowledge that it's out there if we get into that lecturing posture of let me tell you what all the bad things about use and why you shouldn't do it and we don't hold space for why they want to or what their struggles are Mm -hmm. then we're really polarizing ourselves in that conversation so I really think being able to have that dialogue and also making opportunities for kids to have connection I I think there was a study that was done where 
the way that they used to actually study um, substance use is they, they would put rats in a cage and they would, in their water bottle, they would put drugs and they would, and the, the rat would just keep going back to the, the drugs until they died. And then they did another study where they had rats in like a rat kingdom. They gave them everything that they could possibly want. All the friends, all the sexual partners, like they made, and like all the fun. <laughs> the wheel, everything. Exactly. <laughs> they made, and what would happen is when the drugs were available, they would go and they would sample it and then they'd go live their life. And then they'd come back and they'd sample it. But there wasn't this compulsive use. It, and so I think that's too with kids. It's really about like the prevention and proactive nature is helping kids and or people have access to a community to engagement and really balancing being overly lenient because I think one of the warning signs is when is when parents really like normalize it or make it like something that they that kids can go out and use and come back and there's no consequences to it but then on the other side if we're over controlled and not realistic about the temptations I think that is something that becomes problematic too so it's really finding the balance between the two saying I don't like it I I'm not condoning it and I'm realistic about it and I want you to have a place to come talk about it whether it's as a parent with me or making other people accessible to your kids too because they'll find their people whether it's teachers and um sure or family friends or whatever it might be you want to make sure that they have connection to some sort of a community and I I think the more activity that they can have availability to treatment like kind of normalizing struggle and emotion is a, a good way to to kind of give some preventative structures or put some preventative structures into place so that they can um so that they can they can know that they can access support and help and also not make it a shameful or kind of elusive experience at the same time so i hear i mean definitely I mean, those rats, you said, they certainly had the life worth living, the right. ones in the kingdom. So making sure life is rich enough that there are other things that sort of activate the reward center or that are fulfilling in their lives, making sure we're safe places mm-hmm. um, and realistic places to have conversations about it. But what role also does teaching adaptive coping skills play? Like I think about all the the skills of DBT, for example, emotional regulation, mindfulness, all the, it's so skill-based. Mm-hmm. Like you're upset. This is what you can do. Should we be doing a better job teaching those just foundational coping skills to our children? Absolutely. I think I remember. That was a softball yes, question. Was- <laughs> I own that. I knew what your answer I knew you weren't going to say no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're ahead. talking to a psychologist here. Um, a DV- So yes, absolutely. But I think that's, that's one of the basic principles of DBT is that people are doing the best they can. And when they're not, when they're struggling with something, we assume that they don't have the skills to do something different. And the context matters. And so when I think about where we have gone, like I remember in grade school, we had, we had social emotional learning. We had a class that was called guidance. It had like a it was called he was do so was the um the dolphin mm. dolphin puppet and you would you would learn coping strategies and whatnot and actually at 
my practice, evidence-based therapy partners, we we reach out to schools and there's a DBT implementation um, program in schools to help with social emotional learning because if they do, if kids don't have somewhere else to learn these things, they're going to learn from their friends. And I, I think about me as a 15 year old. I don't know that I want to learn social emotional skills from me as a 15 year old. Me now, <laughs> that that might be yeah. something different. But I do think that being able to teach these adaptive coping skills mediates the need for relying on substances for emotion regulation or distress tolerance or even interpersonal connection. Some people that I work with, a big part of what they're struggling with is emotional connection and and interpersonal relationships. Like, oh, I have to go to this party. I'm going to have a drink. We talked about pieces of that. And Mm -hmm. like, how am I going to navigate this? How am I going to manage my anxiety if I'm not able to, to have a drink or two? And uh, I think that's, that's where there's a big gap in our learning and understanding. So I think what should, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say, I think being able to teach those skills that some of us might have and some of us might not, and actually having people understand what this, what skills can function as and why they work and why things that we do actually have certain impacts and which ones don't in certain contexts, I think is really important. That understanding is huge. And what should we do? Let's say someone suspects that a loved one does have a problem, that their substance use has become problematic. It's risky. Uh, what what would you recommend that they do? I think the biggest thing when it comes to help and support is availability and connection. I think the the idea of like holding an intervention that says like you get clean or I'm I won't love you anymore. Yeah, I won't yes. love you anymore. Like <laughs> I I don't I haven't seen that actually create a lot of success. I think that <laughs> and I think there is this balance of being overly involved in the solution of substance use too. There's actually this movie um called uh I think it's called a beautiful boy and it's about a father and son the son is struggling with substance use and the dad gets so committed to getting him sober that it's somebody else getting him sober and you see the destruction kind of with both of them that they're just in this battle with each other and at the end the dad kind of loosens up and is like I'm here and I'm not gonna engage with us like I'm not going to like you've got to figure this out and I think that's where acceptance is so huge when we hold on to other people's outcomes it directs our behavior in a way that's not actually effective for either one of us and so I think when it comes to helping people like how we respond it's helping them access treatment noting the problem I think sometimes making it harder to use but easier to engage in that life worth living and creating bonds and connection because people we want to say like I I'm present in your life and you have somewhere to land when you figure this out too because I think that the more that we isolate and punish the more that it just gives more opportunity for the substances to to win out that makes sense um 
You know, my next question, I always end on a note of hope, um, but I've enjoyed talking with you so much, even though we're talking about something as as dire as substance use, I think there's a note of hope in everything you say. It's been it's been uh, really nice to, to hear that. But, you know, you look at the state of things and it, it can be easy to get depressed in this work. And when totally. we think about all these people struggling, what, what does give you hope to continue doing this work? What are the bright sides in your mind? I, well, I think one thing I think you, you said or you noted there is that it, it is really hard work. I think it's hard to be in relationship with people who are struggling with substances and there's real pain on all fronts with it. I think the glimmers of hope that I see is that people are accessing help and support more. Uh, my, in my community, I have a lot of people who are in the AA community and I hear about their experience and I've heard about kids as young as 14, 15 being in going to AA meetings to try mm. and access that support. So I think with the increasing rates of problems with mental health, like with the, the suicidality, with the drug use, I think also comes more accessibility and availability to treatment and support. And I think more people are apt to reach out to those, to those resources as well. And so I think one of the questions I always ask myself, and I, I, I think it, it applies and doesn't apply to the substance use statistics, is like, is it, are we seeing it more because we're talking about it more? And so there's more availability and communication about these things. So people are more apt to, to admit to the struggles that they're having, or is it actually increased rates? And I think we, we mm -hmm. see, we see death rates going up. We see like more health problems coming up because of substances. So I think we have, we have clear data to support that the substance use epidemic is a real thing. I also think the hope that I have is that people are accessing treatments and treatment communities are constantly looking at how do we do this better? How do we help people? How do we support people? How do we get people out of their struggle in a more effective way? And so I think that that's what I always hold on to. And I think I, and people always ask me like, cause I, in addition to substance use, I do work with people who are chronically or acutely suicidal or self-harming. Mm -hmm. And everybody asks me, how do you, how do you do that day in and day out? And it's really interesting. Like the, where people come in is not what sticks with me. What sticks with me is right. how hard people work and how close they get to their life worth living, if not surpassing it. And I think that being able to see that the individual's experience and growth, um, I think is a huge part of where I hold on to hope about the state of I things. I say that all the time. We get to watch people get better mm -hmm. and we get to be on that journey with them. And it's a pretty amazing thing, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you, Jessica. I think this was a really important conversation. I feel like I learned a lot. I was definitely very interested. And I thank you for the great work that you do, both in in treating your clients, but also in training the rest of us other clinicians and how to be better at what we do as well. So I, ju I just really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was really nice to talk to you and to be here. Um, and I, I really appreciate what you're doing and having these constant and consistent dialogues. So thank you.
It's my position that by shining a light on these issues, admitting that they are in our own backyards, it will be easier for a struggling child to get some help. Ideally, we can all begin to be kinder and more supportive of each other. In My Backyard is brought to you by the Guidance Center, a children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. In My Backyard is produced by Tricia Costales and Matthew Murray. Thank you to J. Vincent B. for original music. All other music licensed through Soundstripe. Thank you to our listeners and supporters. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Subscribe to In My Backyard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.